0: Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host Coley Moore. Thank you everybody for listening, and of course, as always, please subscribe to the podcast, uh, five to five star iTunes rating, etc., etc. Share the podcast, especially uh, if you like what we're talking about. Uh, it goes a long way towards uh, helping us grow. And also, don't forget that we're ad free. So if you want to donate, uh, keeps the lights on for us. Uh, you can do so at empiricalcycling.com/donate. We have the show notes up on the website, and uh, if you have any coaching or consultation inquiries, questions, and comments, you can shoot me an email at empiricalcycling at gmail.com. And of course, as always, becoming an Empirical Cycling uh, coaching client does help the podcast as well. So if you want to check me out on Instagram, you can do so at Empirical Cycling. We can AMAs in the Instagram stories, so give me a follow to check that out. And uh, today, we have a really cool podcast. So uh, our guest is a research fellow at the University of Birmingham. He's the nutritionist for Bora Hansgro, and he's also a really good Instagram to follow uh, at Tim uh, Podlogar, uh, which is how to pronounce it. Uh, Although he says in English, uh, people say Podlogar, and he thinks that's also acceptable. Um, So he's got a really cool Instagram. Uh, He's uh, a very open and thoughtful person. He's very thought-provoking as well. Uh, He does a lot of reading. and he does a lot of questioning things, and so he and I have been chatting on uh, Instagram now and then. Uh, and um, I think he's a very interesting guy, and I was so happy that he could uh, come onto the podcast. So, uh, without further ado, let's get right into it. And you are Slovenian, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so why are there so many good cyclists from Slovenia right now? Is it is it the water? Is it the mountains?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Slovenia is like. A very small country, uh, we only have 2 million people living there uh, but the environment is like really, really nice for cycling. We have uh, flats and we have proper mountains so we're the, we are on the southern part uh, of um, Alps mm-hmm. so we have like climbs up to 2,000 meters of elevation but I think what set us up, sets us apart to other countries is probably the lifestyle um, because um, like Kids are educated in a way that allows them to play a lot um, outside. Uh, there is a lot of organized sport, so pe- like all the kids probably take part at least in one sport. Um, so this gives kids an opportunity um, to develop into athletes. Probably, mm-hmm. um, I, I I don't see like Slovenian sports um, or, or like professionals. I mean the coaches and the staff. To be um, like top of the top in the world. Um, it's just this, like everybody's taking part in at least one sport, and I think this is a difference.
0: That's interesting. So, is that how you got your start in uh, cycling and exercise physiology? So,
1: my background, I had when I was a kid, and like probably up to like the second year of my um, university, I was actually a sailor. So. I've been sailing for numerous years, trying to like go to the Olympics, um, become like a star in sailing. But then at one point I saw that probably um, I can't really succeed in sailing, and also like there is no money. I can't live from sailing. Um, So I was on the point. Let's find a sport um, that would allow me to kind of become a professional in terms of like uh, sports sciences. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I wanted to kind of explore better was to better understand science, and cycling was a perfect sport to do that. Uh, Because reading studies, um, you can only understand so much um, unless you do like the sport yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how I started cycling myself. And yeah, now it's been probably around 10 years.
0: Yeah, it's actually been about 10 years for me too. I was uh, commuting to school when I went to get my second undergrad degree in biology, and I was riding my bike to school, and I thought this is the most fun thing I've ever done. I had I had been riding a little bit, but I was I just started trying to go fast, and I was like, this is great. And then I heard that you could compete. <laughs> so, um, and your uh, your Instagram is great, by the way. Everybody should follow you on Instagram, Tim Putlagar, uh on Instagram. Thanks. And I remember a couple weeks ago you posted a story, all the interesting stuff happens in your stories. I feel like my Instagram is phrased <laughs> the same way. Um, I don't think you, I don't think you're interested in my Instagram, but I'm very much interested in yours. So in your Instagram, um, you talked, uh, about a story about how you got interested in exercise physiology. And I, I want you to tell that story to me cause I love it so much. <laughs> so
1: yeah, like I always thought I would study like engineering or physics or something like really like, um, yes, something more natural sciences or how to say. Um, but then I had this, um, strength and conditioning coach, um, that wasn't really happy of how like sports sciences, uh, were in Slovenia, um, the university degree and stuff. And he was always opposing them. Um, but the problem of his was that he did, he wasn't like, Edu- properly educated in the field. Um, so he couldn't like do it himself. Mm-hmm. So one day he came up with an idea, yeah, okay, Tim, um, perhaps you should be studying sports sciences so that we together can um, show them that perhaps they are incorrect. Um, so I started su- studying sports sciences knowingly that I will hear things that are probably incorrect and I should probably like question them. Um, and this was a really great start because whatever I heard at the uni, I didn't take for granted, but I just wanted to explore a bit deeper, especially the things that I was really interested in. Um, so I started with being interested in like normal strength and conditioning, like training for hypertrophy and stuff like that. Only then I started being interested in nutrition and then general exercise physiology. And I always found some gaps. Um, and what lectures were telling us. Um, and this kind of stayed with me, um, because, yeah, it, we, all, we all have certain ideas that perhaps are not true um, and are based on certain understanding and certain um, knowledge we acquire over the time. Um, and I think we all have to come to our own conclusions based on the uh, literature and based on the evidence we read and see. Um, and that's, yeah, and basically it,
0: how I... Well, and it's, um, it, I mean, uh, my podcast co-host is actually a physicist himself, um, and he always sympathizes with me when I talk about how difficult it is to interpret human physiology. Um, just the tools that we have and the definitions that we've been working with for so long um, are um, under... Well, it's it's sort of like um, like threshold. <laughs> like there are how many definitions of threshold do we have, and how many are actually useful? Uh, I mean, I would say they're all useful in some degree. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a great example because we all talk about those thresholds, and then at one point we ask ourselves, "Are we actually talking about the same threshold?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Um, <clears throat> all right. Well, I've got more questions on that in a little bit, but uh, first I want to ask you about your current job. So you are the uh, nutritionist for Bora Hansgro? Or uh, is, is it still Bora Hansgro? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, how did you get that job? Did you did they come lo- knocking at your door? Did they email you and say we want to hire you, or <laughs> did you uh, did you apply for the job properly?
1: No, I just heard from them one day. <laughs>
0: Really? That's awesome. <laughs> so why do you think that they ask you? Do you think that they really just want to eat a lot of Haribo? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: it was probably some um, recommendations from uh, people that I know. Um, I think, yeah, that's probably the way. And um, I, I got pretty like, known for my Instagram account and um, critical thinking. And I think that's probably how I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, because I never like really, like I wanted to work once um, in a sports team, uh, but probably not yet because my priority kind of, I try to remain in an academia and I think that's the main job at the moment still.
0: Um. Um, okay, so I have, I have two questions about that actually. The first one is uh, what are you researching in academia? Because you post a lot about, um, a lot of stuff from your lab, but. Uh, I don't really get a good impression of what you're actually studying. So what's your current project? I'm sure you have several. (laughs) It's
1: it's interesting because I'm like working on different projects at the same time. Um, So my main employment is actually um, at the University of Birmingham. I'm a research fellow, um, and I'm supposed to be working on a project looking at um, exogenous carbohydrate oxidation rates. Um, and how these are affected by heat acclimation. Um, So this is a project I'm about to start um, pretty soon. But otherwise, um, there are still some things that I started when I was still in Slovenia, um, and these were more general like exercise uh, metabolism studies or carbohydrate metabolism ones. Um, Basically, my main research interest has always been um, exercise metabolism slash like probably carbohydrate metabolism, but I always kind of go into different ways um, as well, like study about mental last year, uh, core body temperature sensor and stuff like that. So I'm always like kind of open to other things as well.
0: Yeah. And um, well, I, cause I get the sense that you, that you both read widely and any time that you get struck by inspiration, you get on the bike and you start testing yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
0: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've done the same thing. I had some inspiration uh, a week or two ago, and I, uh, I'm a, uh, my main focus in training is track sprinting. But I decided to jump on the bike, and because I'm so highly trained as a strength athlete, I thought I would uh, try to find my uh, maximal lactate steady state. I found some very interesting things, and uh, including that. Um, if you don't do it for a while, it really hurts, <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so at, in your role as a nutritionist for Bohansgro, um what changes have you already implemented with the team? I assume it's a lot more carbohydrates.
1: I mean, we have always been a carbohydrate um, first uh, team, so it wasn't a lot of like carbohydrate periodization as such. Um, and I kind of like that. Um, one of the things probably uh, I like started really to push is um, more fructose um, in the recovery before racing and on the bike as well, um, because fructose is probably my thing <laughs> um, from also coming from research. Well, tell me more um, about that, because I think,
0: because um, I just saw a thread on a forum a couple days ago talking about Fructose causes cancer. Fructose doesn't get used by the muscles. Um, all kinds of things. Uh, so tell tell me more about fructose and why it's beneficial and where and, you know why you like to use fructose more for recovery and before races and stuff like that. So probably probably
1: the biggest like um, in the public like why we kind of uh, see fructose as a bad guy um, is the fact that. Um, all those sweet uh, beverages um, like Coca-Cola and um, yeah, any sweets are basically full of fructose Um, and people like over consuming sugars as such um, and also fructose. And fructose can't really be metabolized in other tissues but in the liver. So basically this kind of causes uh, fructose overload in the liver, um, especially if the liver glycogen is full and then we Perhaps um, this leads to problems like um, accumulation or formation of um, fats in the liver, um, which can be formed from fructose. But in athletes, this is just another energy source because, f- for instance, during exercise, uh, fructose uses a different transporter um, for the uptake from the gut into the bloodstream. Um, and this way can, we can actually get more carbohydrates into the bloodstream. Um, At a quicker rate and then the next thing is because it has to go into the liver Um, in the liver it gets converted to um, glucose or lactate or is is forming glycogen so during exercise we get another substrate that muscles can use and this is lactate so sometimes during exercise if you're eating something with a lot of um fructose like just table um, sugar you can actually see a higher uh, lactate values
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and this is just driving this concentration gradient up and we can then um, metabolize this um, lactate just like glucose
0: and so the, um, so the team was doing less fructose previously like were most of their uh, most of their pre-race supplements and recovery supplements mostly glucose based so
1: it's kind of, the the problem is with, I think, in the industry itself, uh, because um, m- most of the like sports nutrition companies are still refusing to add fructose into their products, and they just um, use maltodextrin. Uh, but we've shown, like in Birmingham, and then there are some other studies as well, showing that even in recovery or pre-exercise, perhaps, additional fructose can, speed up the liver glycogen synthesis. So um, it's always like something that's uh, beneficial. But if we take a look at like composition of energy gels, energy drinks um, available on the market, we see that they're mostly multi based. Um, And this is not ideal because this only allows you to ingest like up to 60, 70 grams of carbs per hour. Whereas professional cycling teams are pushing towards 120 at the moment. And you can't really do that without um, addition of fructose. Um, so it's something that like some brand, brands are like finally catching up with science. Uh, although we know this for like more than 15 years. Um, and this is also like why I got involved in the sports nutrition brand. Um, and I started developing my product just for the sake because I couldn't give any good recommendations to my athletes.
0: So what is your product? What are you selling?
1: So I'm not selling, I'm just basically, yes, yeah, I I got approached by uh, some people um, in Slovenia, a small brand, uh, because I was pretty tough with them, uh, saying that their products are bad. Um, And they said, yeah, can you help us do better? And I said, okay, well, let's do it. Um, So the brand is called um, Endurance, um, starting with N and um, ending with Z. And basically, all um, the products are based on 1 to 0.8 ratio, maltodextrin and fructose, which I believe is um, the optimal ratio for uh, during exercise fueling and then recovery as
0: well, probably. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because that um, I will cross out that question later because that was one of the ones I was going to ask you. Um, <laughs> so let me actually ask you more about um, your job with where Hans grows. So... Because um, I know you and I had damned on Instagram before and you said that you're not a coach, but do you feel like you're starting to become more of like a nutrition coach in your role here?
1: So I always kind of, I don't want to be a coach, although I probably have a lot of like knowledge uh, coaching wise, I even like lectured and gave lectures on about coach, um, endurance coaching back in Slovenia. Um, so this is something yeah, I'm kind of probably mostly fam- pretty familiar with. Um, I just don't want to coach anyone. Um, because I want to like be as good as I can be in just one area. So this is nutrition. Uh, But in order to really understand nutrition and um, be good at giving advice, you then need to understand everything else around it. Um, Otherwise, you end up with just like a very reductionist view and you just focus on nutrition and you don't see anything else. Um, And then you can come up with some stupid ideas. (laughs) It might sound smart in terms of nutrition, but they just don't work.
0: Um, Well, I like that because I think what I've found in coaching, um, because I came from academia initially, but I was riding my bike at the same time, and I was always trying to apply what I was learning to my training. And and I found that when you actually have to apply it practically – you come up with very different requirements for the things that you are going to work with. Because, like, I cannot measure my VO2 max, like, just riding around. Um, And so the big question became, um, you know, what are the key performance metrics that we can use for practical, like, everyday athletes versus... What metrics would you use having daily access to a lab? Are are they different?
1: Yeah, I think so. So one of the things that I learned over the years was so you can I can measure. I have access to all the equipment. Um, I can do a vitamex test every single day. I can measure rectal temperature every single day. Um, I can do can probably continuous biopsies. I can look at the blood and stuff, but. At one point, you have to ask yourself, what are you going to do with this data? How is this data going to help you um, improve, um, develop? And at one point, you come up to the like conclusion that sometimes more data is not as good because you just get lost um, in all of those details. And also, you spend way too much time testing, analyzing the data, and then you kind of forget about the basics. Um, so I'm not like very convinced that you need to go into the lab and do all the tests all the time. Um, it's nice to have like a like a picture of the athlete, um, an idea of what's going on. But um, like continuous testing day after day with like measuring um, VO2 on every single training session, measuring lactate on every single training session. That's just overkill in my view. Um, it doesn't help.
0: So how often would you test somebody in the lab?
1: So it really depends of what kind of an athlete he is. So let's take someone that is kind of trying to become a cyclist. Um, He's still improving greatly. Um, So for instance, he can still improve the VO2max every single year. Then perhaps like having two to three times, um, two to three, testing sessions in the lab can be a good thing. Um, For instance, to measure the first lactate threshold, the second threshold, and then perhaps like vo 2 max But then if you take like professional athlete, his vo 2 max is not going to change over the years at all. It's going to stay where it is. So why test it um, if it's not going to change? So it's like, it's pointless. So you probably just have to test the parameters that are actually changing so perhaps like the first threshold the second threshold um, and then you can always like do it on the go as well Um, sometimes if it's like taking too much time because you can clearly see based on like heart rate based on the feelings uh, how the rider is behaving um, and those thresholds are not set in stone so you see one number i don't know 350 watts today the next day it can be like 355 and you just like fatigue think or um, daily variability so um, you come to the point where those differences um, are so small that you can't pick them up anymore Um, whereas in novice athletes you have to keep testing because those change so quickly. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you on all of that by the way. But um, so you mentioned first and second threshold because this is something where I think that you and I disagree a little bit on, um, <laughs> which I thought would be interesting to talk about because, um, you know, I asked you once uh, what you prefer uh, for a second threshold. Well, actually, let's talk about first threshold first. Um, so what's your testing procedure for first threshold? Like what's your, how do, how do you define? Because if we want to talk about it in terms of uh, exercise intensity domains, it's between the... Um, Oh crap, I never I never talk about the domains. It's uh, the light and the moderate or something?
1: Yeah, so it's moderate, heavy, and... Uh, mo- yeah, mo- um, yeah, between
0: moderate and heavy. So how would you go about finding that?
1: Um, so, like, myself, if I can do it and I have the equipment at the time, I would probably do um, lactate, um, like 0.5 of a millimeter increase from the baseline. Um, that's how I would define the first threshold in the past or recent more recently let's say um i've been using the ventilatory threshold so the first like increase in ventilation um, and it was pretty similar to for instance lactase. i was going to say cuz um, don't
0: uh don't vt1 and lt1 decouple to some degree
1: i mean it's probably de- down to again to like
0: to the measurements measurement, uh, measurement error yeah. as well um yeah okay cuz um, what i found with uh with LT1 testing is that um you know from baseline um pretty much as soon as it starts going up that's about where i fa- find LT1 um is uh um, happens so like for instance last test i did on myself uh, i was at about um p- one point like one or 1.2 millimole up into a certain Thing. And then, then I noticed my RPE change over uh, about 30 watts, and but my, my blood lactate only went up about 0.3 millimole. Um, and so when we look at a, a threshold like that, um, you know, what other kind of criteria would you use to help define it?
1: So it's probably talk test uh, is very useful as well. So this is the, is the last point where you can normally talk. Mm-hmm. Um, because the ventilation is still manageable. Um, And the other one is probably um, like heart rate drift that would occur over the duration of a few hours. So for instance, I know exactly my threshold just by like doing training sessions in close proximity to the threshold. And if I see like an increase in heart rate over like two, three, four hours, then I'm definitely over the threshold. if there is no change in heart rate, then I am at or below the threshold. That's how I see it mm. most of the time.
0: Um, would you expect that to change with uh, like a, uh, somebody who's like sprint trained like myself? <sighs> Good question. <laughs> um, I <know>. and <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably this, uh, the duration when you would start to expect the drift uh, because even in my case, you will see a drift eventually. But in your case, perhaps you will see a drift at a um, lower amount of time or work uh, performed. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is exactly what I see. Um, like, my heart my heart rate actually starts to drift pretty immediately, like within about 20 or 30 minutes. Um, but I actually don't find that uh, myself. I don't find heart rate and uh, a drift to be a good um, indicator because I, you know, for me personally, I want my, thre- de- uh, threshold definitions to work for everybody across the board, whether, whether sprint trained or not. Cause I know that you work with super well-trained endurance athletes most of the time, but you know, when I'm working with, uh, an average athlete, um, who may have a lot of fast twitch fibers or, you know, do a lot of strength training on the side, I want my definition to work like that too. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
1: I totally, yes. Yeah.
0: Um, uh, Well, okay, so let's talk about the second threshold, Um, because you don't like FTP is what I hear.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm not like a a lover or a hater of a certain threshold. I just, you know, like um, knowing the limitations of each one, I think that's appreciating the limitations um, and positives is I think the most important thing. So. If you're talking about professional athletes and the athletes at the highest rank, I think like critical power, um, in my view, is the way to go. Um, but I've done myself functional threshold power tests, um, 60 minutes once, and I found them pretty good. Um, I've done lactate threshold tests, um, and I found them pretty good. Um, so all those tests, I think, have a space. Even the ramp test, to a certain degree, like what Trainer Road was doing, is fine for a certain population because you can't expect everyone to do like three minute all out and 12 minute all out and five minute all out and expect to get like a perfect fit for the critical power test and you can't expect people to go to the lab and do the lactate threshold testing so overall i think it's down to the context of what athlete wants to achieve and then it's also down to the coach that knows the limitations of the um Threshold he's using, um, and I think like consistency is the key here. Uh, because yeah, if you do like in the spring a functional threshold power test, like 20 minutes, and then you take 95%, and then uh, in three months' time you do a critical power test and you compare the data, um, that's not how you do it. Um, you have to be <laughs> consistent, and I think that's the most important thing.
0: Um, I agree with you there because I I personally don't like critical power um, because I find, especially with with sprinters and people who have good anaerobic capacity, it can still overestimate what is reasonable for them to accomplish as a threshold. So I want to run my definition of threshold by you and see what you think. So my my definition of threshold is the work rate at which above the athlete fatigues much faster and below where they fatigue much slower.
1: Yeah, in a way, I mean, it's it, it's very difficult, different how you view it, but yeah, I get this point about like the percentage of muscle fiber, ty- um, the muscle fiber type distribution, because I think that plays a big role um, in time to like fatigue or time to task failure um, when you go above the threshold. And obviously the, critical, the problem of the critical power is one can sustain the intensity of critical power for like 15 minutes perhaps, um, and the other one would sustain it for 40 minutes. So how do you compare? So this is kind of an issue um, people have, um, and you have to be really like um, understand this so that you kind of um, take note of this. And the thresh, the FTP is very simple. It's defined by time. It's just not defined by physiology, let's say.
0: Interesting, because um because I'm going to have Andy Coggin on the podcast to talk about this very thing, actually, because, um, you know, because he initially, uh, you know, a long time ago said FTP is the power at maximal lactate steady state. But, um, you know, there was a good uh, a good paper recently uh, from I think um, I think Mark uh, Burnley was on it. Uh, Andrew Jones was an author. Um, I think Poole was an author, uh, and where they talk about the downsides of using maximal lactate steady state and you know, that they put forth that critical power would be uh, a better metric. Uh, and while I agree with their uh, criticisms of ma- maximal lactate steady state, um, you know, um, I actually forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> um, yeah, so I see the drawback, but I think um, you know, what I use personally is I look for the inflection point in the power curve. Because that, to me, is the best marker that we have for this threshold, because I don't think it correlates very well with the definition for maximal lactate steady state, for critical power, for OBLA, uh, for DMAX method and a RAM test, like all of these things, I don't think that they work with 100% of athletes, and that's, that's my personal standard as a coach for a threshold. Um, do, do you agree with that? Do you disagree? Um, I'm sure you're somewhere in the middle. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I try to understand both camps. And I think it's like looking from the scientific point of view, we are trying to find like an explanation, a physiological explanation of what would constitute a threshold. And this is why we say, okay, so maximum elected steady state, the problem of it is that we are looking at what happens in the blood and then critical power probably more reflect what is going on in the muscle. Um, but then from the coach's perspective, this doesn't really help. Um, so when you want to like really prescribe training sessions, then perhaps the duration um, component um, is more important. Um, and this is when you kind of yeah. You have good point to like use a different method, and if you know the limitations of your method, I think that's 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 the most important thing. Um,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, uh, personally, I don't find my method actually has a limitation because uh, I it I find that it works for every single athlete that I coach. Um, whereas I, I mean, not you didn't
1: want to say like limitation per se, but like it's the physiological thing that perhaps the like rationale, um or the explanation for underlying physiology. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. Because what happens uh,
0: in the blood is not what happens in the muscle. And you know what happens in the working set of muscles is not necessarily the same across all muscles. So if we're looking, I agree. So if we're looking for a metabolic state in a muscle, we're not gonna find it distributed evenly across all working muscle, so, or the blood. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so speaking of metrics, Uh, I just saw this morning that you uh, got a paper on VO2max accepted. So uh, congratulations, by the way. Uh, So tell me a little bit about that paper.
1: So yeah, it started like a year and a half ago um, when I started shaping the module. um, I was um, in Slovenia, so it was like endurance um, coaching methods or something like that. and I was reading those papers from the Norwegian, um, school, uh, Norwegian scientists. And I found out that their view to max was in the like seventies, uh, like people were highly trained elite athletes, probably average 72, 75, um, and that's super high. But then when I was looking at the threshold power, like, or the, like the, um, I think they use, um, power at four millimoles of lactate, it was like 4.4, 4.5 watts per kilo. And I was like, well, these are not elite athletes because elite athletes or elite cyclists with view to max of 75 have a threshold of like 5.3 at least watts per kilo, uh, most of them. Um, and the Increases in performance you see after a result of certain intervention are, as a result, much different. And those athletes, obviously, if their V2 Max was really high and the power was low, their efficiency on the bike was really poor. Um, and they have a lot of room for improvement, so whatever you will give them, they will improve vastly. Um, and obviously, this didn't reflect um, like the real world so if you would apply the same strategy into bora hans riders or whichever like highly trained athletes you will not see the same responses and I was thinking perhaps V2Max is not the best let's say predictor or um of performance or let's say um, or better like descriptor of um training status of um athletes so I started thinking Well, what would it be then? And then I came up with this idea like, okay, well, it's probably the boundary between the heavy and severe exercise intensity domain. So let it be maximum elected, steady state, critical power. Um, At the end of the day, they are all very close, like within like probably 10, 15 watts and that's still like 0.1, 0.2 watts per kilo, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that vastly (laughs) different. So I came with this idea and um, talked to the colleagues, uh, Peter Leo and James Frack, and they were like, yeah, you're right. Uh, So we started like shaping an opinion article. um, And basically we were just hit by reviewers saying that that's just not acceptable. So we were rejected in four different journals.
0: I'm sorry about that. Um, Well, why do you think that there was such pushback? Because, um, you know, I think, People like me and you know our generation of uh, well, if I if I may be so bold as to suggest that I am a sports scientist of any degree, Um, so I think our our generation of sports scientists would generally think that that's probably acceptable. Um, So why do you think you got uh, you were met with such bad reviews?
1: I don't know. I think it's as you said, it's probably like the generation thing. Because even looking at the Twitter this morning when we shared. Um, that we got this accepted and we explained what the paper is about uh, or that they haven't been able to read it um it was kind of the the younger generation was like yeah that's how it should be done there is no like no question whatsoever but then the older generation was more like yeah perhaps no it's Max it's a really good um, descriptor of general health status and yeah they are they are so it was like it's. I think it's a tradition thing um, at the end of the day, and I think this is the biggest, the, uh, one of the big problems we have in like sports sciences or exercise physiology as such, because we we have these old traditions that we just keep copying and pasting into new articles, and then um, we just we are sometimes just lost um, in old dogmas and beliefs.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, because I think. um Every couple years, what seems to happen is a different section of the uh, exercise physiology world finds out that um, certain things related to VO2 max and performance are not as they seem. Because I remember a couple of years ago, in another section of exercise physiology Twitter that I follow, um, they discovered that, uh, you know, critical power. Uh, I think that what they were measuring or maximal lactate steady say it happens at a different percentage of uh VO2 max for uh for the range for the population and that maybe assigning um interval training or endurance riding at a percentage of VO2 max is suboptimal. And this reminds me of that um a little bit. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah exactly. So for instance what we do like in usually in exercise metabolism studies is um, we get participants in the lab, we do a view to max test, which is like a graded exercise test to task failure. Um, and then instead of figuring out where the first and the second threshold are, but whichever definition, um, what we do is we just take percentage of the peak power uh, we achieve on that test. Mm-hmm. And... For some people, it can be over the threshold, the first one, or for, certain, for some, it can be below. Uh, and nobody knows, but we are happy because we, st- we standardized um, <laughs> the intensity. Right? So, uh,
0: so what I'm getting a sense of, and I actually see this a lot in the cycling world, whether it's at races or whether it's in the lab or with coaches, uh, having something standardized and easy for the people who are administering Whatever it is, uh, is more typical than something that is actually the most accurate or the best for the athlete.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so, one of the problems is probably like understanding because many coaches don't have like a proper training, um, they just become trainers or coaches. Um, after completing or finishing their um, cycling career um, and they just learned a few things that they don't really know the physiology um, and they're just doing what they were taught um, in the past or they just listen to someone uh, who has certain beliefs and then we end up with exactly this.
0: Yeah, I, I always call it selection bias. So whatever you think works for you must work for everybody and if it doesn't work for a certain person, they don't uh, it, you know Well, it, not always, but it seems like oftentimes they won't think about what is wrong with my approach, they'll think, oh, this person just isn't getting faster and that's just what it is.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, if, if this is like probably comes uh, back to like responders or nor, non-responders to exercise training because in the past, there were some studies indicating, yeah, you can't, imp- certain people cannot improve uh, VO to max and we're talking about untrained people. Uh, and what they did in those studies were they just give them like steady state exercise Um, and then a few years ago there was a scientist Karsten Lundby that actually challenged this and what he did was he just um, assigned those people that did not respond initially to a training protocol that was a bit more demanding uh, and suddenly they increased their view to max so basically there are no non-responders it's just that that training is not tailored for the. I
0: wrote a Training Peaks article using that uh, very paper <laughs> uh, a couple years ago. Uh, I used that one, and there was another one by, I think, uh, a great study by Ronstad, where they had the same amount of um, training. Uh, sessions per three or four weeks, and for one group they did most of the training sessions in the first week, and then one per for the le- next two or three weeks. And the other group they did them spaced evenly. And the people who did the biggest um, the biggest training block initially actually improved more. So between those two, I uh, the premise of my article was to suggest. If you're not finding that somebody's improving, try adding more training, <laughs> which is funny, because normally yeah. in coaching, I say, if somebody's not improving, you might want to add more rest. But <laughs> you know, you can go the other way with it, too. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's really like, it's a tough one, and sometimes, yeah, it's like listening to the effort and figuring out what really is and what in what state they are, um, whether it's fatigue or is it just, yeah, lack of training. Yeah,
0: yeah. and and Lindby is actually one of my very favorite um, people right now in terms of uh, doing research and publishing papers, um, so I, I love that you brought him up because he's one of my favorites. Him and uh, Montero are, are my two very favorites right now. Um, so... Okay, so let's talk about um, nutrition and adaptation a little bit, because I'm really excited to talk about this with you, because um, it's very rare that I find somebody who agrees with me on stuff like this. So, um, <laughs> so my podcast listeners will, uh, will be like, oh, God, this again, but <laughs> I think I've only released one podcast episode on this. So, um, okay, so the big question is, can we improve adaptations with endurance training by manipulating nutrition? Yes and no, um, that's the... <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it depends. Um, so so yeah. what, is the, what is the yes? How does the yes work? So when we manipulate nutrition, what do we manipulate and how does that improve adaptation?
1: So let's come to those responders and non-responders. For instance, we have an athlete that only has 10 hours a week to train, right? Um, and he's young, he's recovering quick, um, but he sh- simply, uh, he's working um, full time and doesn't have a l- more time to devote training. Uh, so in this case, carbohydrate periodization or restricting carbohydrates before s- certain training sessions can help because this will add to the like stress um, of the training session itself. And as a result of that, he might improve. And this is pretty clear in the evidence like, of works in those people but then when we have an athlete that has all the time in the world like can train 20 30 hours a week um, training is way bigger stimulus than is nutrition so we actually with nutrition need to make sure that he can do as much training as possible um, so in this way with nutrition we just support the training rather than um, make adaptations or like try to, um, improve the adaptations to
0: training. I a hundred percent agree with you on all of that. Um, and actually one of the things that I've found that is so difficult with carbohydrate periodization for amateur athletes is actually getting them to eat an isocaloric diet. A lot of the time they are failing at having enough food because the other foods that they eat are so filling. Do you find the same
1: it's it's very, it depends really on athlete, from athlete to athlete, but it's like one of the things that I really struggle is to like probably to get them eat more carbohydrates and probably less fat. Um, I think like carbohydrate availability is a big limitation to most athletes mm-hmm. because they're kind of feared of having to match too much, uh, too many carbohydrates.
0: So what kind of uh, training session do you have people do? With uh, restricted carbohydrates.
1: So, for instance, um, I don't like currently work with many athletes uh, because um, I simply don't have time. But like for myself, I have exactly fifteen hours a week um, of time available for cycling. I can't do like an hour more probably. Um, and because I'm doing, I've been doing this for years. I need to find a way how to make the training sessions a bit more stressful. So whenever I have training sessions that are like steady state or below the first threshold. Um, I try to do them like with limited amount of carbs, which means that I wake up, um, have coffee, um, and jump straight to the bike, um, and do the session. Um, if next day I have a hard training session planned, I might have some carbohydrates in the second hour of the training session. Um, if I have like another uh, steady-state training session the next day. I would just go without carbs, um, and then in the previous re- evening I would probably wouldn't like overfill uh, myself with carbohydrates. Um, on the other hand, if I was doing intervals, I would ob- obviously have breakfast, eat plenty of carbs the evening before and during as well.
0: So, what would you say is about the maximum duration for a steady-state training session where you would restrict carbohydrates?
1: I find it's Around two hours, probably. Yeah,
0: that's that's pretty much what I find too. I've and actually I've uh, experimented with some people going longer than that with restricted carbohydrates. Um, but I would usually tell them to you know eat a low carbohydrate meal before getting on the bike and then eat carbohydrates on the bike because you're already depleted and you don't want to bonk. Um, and that's what I've actually found works pretty well.
1: Yeah, I mean one of the things that like the problem of those long um, training session uh, fasted without carbohydrates is that um, you basically are depleting the liver glycogen, and the liver glycogen um, is a good like um, signal to the body of of the hunger. Um, so if you finish this session without any carbs, um, you will really have depleted liver glycogen, um, and for the rest of the day you might be overfeeding as a result of that because. Mm-hmm you would be starving, um, especially considering that um, muscle is kind of being prioritized. At least that's how I see it um, in terms of glycogen repletion. So liver can stay, um, like, fill to a a limited capacity for like at least 24 hours Mm -hmm. um, after being completely empty.
0: Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, So actually, that brings up another question. So facet rides. Um, you know, this is similar because I don't have people do carbohydrate-restricted rides fasted. I actually dislike fasted rides like completely. Although, it, you know, I think it's for short and easy. I think it works. So um, it's, you know, so you would say about an hour or two fasted is okay?
1: Yeah. So one of my PhD studies was actually looking at delayed carbohydrate feeding. Um, and I think this is like really, really good uh, way of how to like maintain very high fat oxidation rates, maintain this cellular stress, um, but maintain like blood glucose levels um, and maintain glycemia. I think this is really important from the recovery perspective. Um, so I usually, to my athletes, recommend having carbohydrates in the second hour of exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a bit more extreme just because <laughs> it's me and I can do whatever I want, but. Uh.
0: I, uh, I, I respect that because um, I think you always have to try something yourself and see, and see how stupid is this uh, that I'm about to do <laughs> before I give it to somebody that I'm responsible for. <laughs> um, actually, that brings up um, what I wanted to ask you next about this, which is, um, so what do you think is the mechanism behind this? Because uh, I think a couple papers have looked at this, but I'm not entirely sure uh, what you think about this.
1: It's probably like a combination of many different things. Um, And we scientists like to see things from the reductionist, uh, reductionism's uh, perspective, which means that we just look at what we're interested in. Um, So a really good example would be like, we know that perhaps adaptations are linked to high, free fatty acid availability um, or like appearance in the bloodstream or concentrations in the bloodstream. Um, But then, so we kind of want to like have high amounts of free fatty acids in the blood during exercise and this is going to lead to adaptations. So that's why we do glycogen depleted training and that's why we do no feeding during exercise. But then if you take a look from another perspective, we know that lactate can also be a stimulus for adaptations, so or like the the pathway that activates certain, uh, so the metabolite that um, um, activates certain pathways. So, and we know that lactate actually suppresses lipolysis, so free fatty acid um, concentration in the bloodstream. So it's not something that kind of is one rule or one stimulus. I think it's like continuous like stressful situations. It's like training, you you can't do the same training session day after day thinking you will get better and better at the same rate. You need to like a kind of experiment, but uh, overall I think it's the flux through the mitochondria that's most important, um, whatever this is. Um, Is it fats? Is it carbohydrates? Um, Doesn't really matter. It's long as it's mitochondrial working at full capacity. I
0: think it's interesting you say that because um because I have an even more reductionist view of adaptation than that. <laughs> but, uh, but to me, if we look at mitochondrial flux, um, I think that goes hand-in-hand hand with all of the other stimulus that I think uh, happens, such as presence of reactive oxygen species... Um, you know, AMPK activation, um, you know, presence of calcium, uh, things like that. And so as long as we've got the mitochondria working at a high rate for a long time, we get all of these other things that I see. Exactly. Yeah. So so, you know, it's um, I actually call that uh, I've I've always wanted to know who said this first, but I don't remember. Um, It was um, metaphorically true but literally false so it gets us to act in such a way that leads to improvement but not exactly for the right reasons um, even though the right reasons are happening parallel to what we think is happening
1: yeah yeah it's a good point I mean also like one of the things that we kind of nutritionists nutritionist like to do is okay well so we'll do fasted right or carbohydrate depleted right so that we it will we will induce um, higher fat oxidation rates during exercise so let's work on fat oxidation rates during exercise and improve that and i'm like well are you sure about this that you want to increase fat oxidation rates on its own without improving like the first threshold and the second threshold Um, and just for the sake of increasing fat oxidation rates because if you like if you compare pogacar and any other athletes that's yeah probably any other athlete you will see that Fogacher has much higher fat oxidation rates, but not because he's like fat adapted it's because simply his mitochondria are capable of oxidizing more uh, more of the substrate um, and you naturally gain this ability to oxidize fat. Um, so training for fat adaptation, I think most of the time is inferior approach to training because you actually want to be improving the, like the uh, effort as a whole rather than just fat oxidation rates.
0: Oh, I agree with you because um, you know, Pogacar's coach, uh, San Milan, um, has said that um, you know, Pogacar is special because he has such low lactate at uh, high power output. Um, but I see that as parallel to fat oxidations because the big question for me is, is he actually burning the glycogen first or is he actually not burning glycogen? Is that why, that's why his blood lactate is low? Because fat oxidation and lactate oxidation have pretty much the same determinant in the muscle, which is mitochondrial surface area and importers, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I t- I agree. So I started thinking about this a, a few, some time ago when I got uh, to the lab. A person um, that was where, positioned very well on the race across America. So he has been competing there year after year. Um, Unfortunately, he didn't won overall, but he was always pretty close. And I asked him, how do you feel your training sessions? And he was like, well, I always have carbohydrates. I always have breakfast. And on the bike, I eat 60 to 70, 80 grams per hour. Um, And I was like, okay, well, let's see how your fat oxidation rates are. Um, And he was, on the bike, and his fat oxidation rates were incredibly high on its own, without like any special nutritional training or whatever. So his fat oxidation rates were like one grams per, uh, per minute, which is super high, right? Uh, yeah. For a high carbohydrate diet, um, and but he was really like the, his second threshold was probably relatively low. And my imagination my feeling is that his proportion of type one fibers is just so high that simply he can't be using most of the time fatty acids.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, so that brings me to my next question, which is why do people confuse substrate utilization with adaptation? I mean, well, maybe you don't know why, but like, let's let's talk about this a little bit. Let's discuss it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's like... It's it's it all started probably like with Tim Noakes and his idea about increasing fat oxidation rates. That's 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 the the thing that people want because we only have certain amount of carbohydrates, let's say the carbohydrates, but then increase fat oxidation rates. And to a certain degree this kind of makes sense because yeah, obviously we don't have enough carbohydrates in the body. So instead of like thinking about how to reduce the relative effort, um, at this, like 200 watts, so that's um, from being above the first threshold to be below the first threshold, and this way increasing fat oxidation rates, we started thinking about how do we, at the same relative exercise intensity, um, increase fat oxidation mm-hmm. rates. Um, and then, okay, well, we can do that with high fat diet, obviously, uh, because we remove the carbohydrates, but then we didn't do much in terms of general, uh, training probably. Um, and then it started and like it developed into like this carbohydrate periodization, which on the paper sounds very smart. So let's restrict carbohydrates before certain training sessions. And we teach this way the body to be metabolically flexible so that it's going to be using um, more fats at lower intensities, um, but still maintain the ability to utilize carbs at high intensities. Um, But I'm not too sure if this is actually the mechanism why people improved after such intervention or, or was it just because they got better and because of the bigger training stimulus. Um, and we are back to the question we had earlier
0: on. (laughs) Yeah, we are, but, um, man, let's take a minute to think about what happened to Tim Noakes because he was so good way back in the day. Like, what what was that? Like, when was the change? About 10, 12 years ago, something like that?
1: No, if you even, like, look at um, his papers papers from the 90s. Oh, yeah, it was like um, the... He was...
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: He was always challenging beliefs, um, but... For some time he was challenging beliefs in the areas that kind of um, needed challenging mm-hmm. um, so he made like improvements um, and he made people think but now he just
0: it's yeah, like it's like started he started to... thinking outside the box but as soon as his outside the as soon as the box started to encompass his Outside the box, he had to go outside that box too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny because he's done so much great work in like exercise physiology field, and I really love his studies. And he's he's still in my mind one of the giants of exercise physiology. But in the recent years, he's just yeah, that's just that's been just yeah. Crazy. I
0: agree. Um, okay, so let's go with the other um, with the other thing. So. Um, why can, why does uh, 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 nutritional uh, interventions, how do they not help adaptation? Uh, So let's think more about like professional athletes. Um, So, cause I think a lot of people see some professional athletes doing low carbohydrate rides, but in your opinion, it's completely unnecessary, right?
1: Yeah, one of the things is then if you do a low carbohydrate ride, then you probably have to sacrifice the duration or intensity of that ride or the recovery. So if you want to do like 25 hours a week, then you probably really can't do that much, um, especially at the younger age. Perhaps like if we take, a, for example, Chris Froome or those um, older riders that are just used to doing so such large volumes and have been doing that for ages now, perhaps they need a nutritional intervention to increase that stress. But for younger riders that are still improving, um, we just need to support uh, with the nutrition. It's the same like as with heat training, uh, I mean like heat adaptation uh, or altitude training, um, it can be a stimulus, but too much um, can be always a problem. So,
0: well, so let's think about a developing athlete, for instance. So at what point would you say let's, cause a lot of developing athletes are, you know, they're teenagers, they're in university. Um, they don't have a lot of time to ride. So at what age, at what point in training would you think, okay, it's it may be time to start doing some morning fasted rides.
1: It really depends like how they recover, um, how much they're improving. For instance, uh, if they have like, uh, some coaches like, like to do um, seven day uh, long block, so no recovery, no proper recovery day. Um, so no like rest day, but they have like one hour of really easy spin. So for instance, we can start with that and see how they are. Um, for the like easy spin, you don't, you just have protein beforehand and perhaps even like some essential amino acids during the ride and see how you feel uh, and how you recover. Um, but other than that, I probably like, I don't recommend unless they're like time limited mm-hmm. really um, to add any way of uh, carbohydrate periodization because you're always risking um, because, uh, getting them into like relative energy deficiency um, and we don't really want that.
0: Yeah, because uh, yeah, I agree. Because um, one of the things that I think I've seen a lot with some, uh, some local amateur athletes, some elite ones who are well regarded. Uh, they'll do things like, I'm going to do an eight hour fasted fat max ride today. Uh, It's like, and everybody's losing their minds because, you know, think about the people who look up to you. Like, this is crazy for you to do, but you know, what if some 14 year old kid wants to do the same? Uh, and then this leads to big problems down the road. You know what I mean? Um, so when you, so actually, here's a question that's completely out of the blue, but, um, you know, when you post stuff like that that you're doing on social media, because I remember uh, one day you did a fasted ride, because um, you, I think it was something like you didn't believe in uh, carbohydrate loading. It's better to do a fasted, hard ride and then eat a lot or something like that. So, um, you know, do you think that there's um, some kind of mechanism of responsibility to make sure that, um, you know, kids watching and who want to get faster and who respect you like don't do the same thing yeah probably um so i, I got this quite a lot from my
1: coach because he was yeah because i was posting these stupid comments and uh, what i was doing um and he was like come on team you have to like uh, remove those <laughs> comments because obviously this is not doing anyone a favor um and probably i don't really show what um all the suffering I'm going through. (laughs) Yeah, nobody does. Uh, Just because, yeah. Uh, Because it's just, yeah, it's not appropriate. Um, And that's why I kind of really want to like, on Instagram, trying to push the carbohydrates uh, to be as important as possible. Um, Because, yeah, in the past, I I think I was also part of like, the people that were giving out the wrong message. Um, And I think that's not good. Um, Especially after seeing that Sometimes I do certain training session, and then I got asked by certain people, "Why did you do those intervals at this and this intensity, this amount of rest?" And I was like, "Well, I have absolutely no idea, <laughs> but apparently somebody is <laughs> analyzing my training sessions."
0: <laughs> I mean, you have like what 2,500 Instagram followers or something like that, so
1: yeah, it's not much. But yeah, um, I mean, I've
0: I've only got 1,900, so I, uh, I I I like to think I don't have much either. <laughs> And then, you know, somebody will tag me like, hey, why did you say this? What about this? And I'm like, oh, people are paying attention. That's weird.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think I like sometimes I just for the sake of this, I um, post a stupid story. I remember last summer I was um, going to um, Italy and then on the way there I stopped in a um, chocolate shop. Um, and I wrote down that I'm doing fat loading, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I got loads of questions about fat loading. <laughs> uh,
0: I've I actually did fat loading before a doctor's appointment a couple weeks ago. Um, I uh, we got some uh, some bacon from a local uh, uh, a local friend who's got a farm, and um, and we we ate it and the next morning i got my my uh, ldl and cholesterol checked and my doctor told me that, <laughs> that i need to stop doing that so uh <laughs> so it turns out fat loading works and your doctor will tell you to stop <laughs> <laughs> um you know i think that's i think that's interesting too cuz um oh man i i was going to ask you a follow up question on that and i forgot what it was um maybe i'll think about it while i'm asking you the next question um so I wanted to talk to you about supplements real quick because there are three supplements that a lot of people talk about um, as having good uh, evidence to support their utilization for endurance athletes. Um, so the first one is bicarbonate. Uh, and I wanna talk about the mechanism or the potential mechanism behind it because I think you've given some thought to these as well as I have, but I'm not entirely sure why most of these work. So maybe you've got some thoughts. So. So why does bicarbonate work for something like uh, like an individual pursuit or maybe even a, a kilo effort on the track? Um, and would you recommend it for you know before a road race or something like that or a criterium?
1: So yeah this is, this is a supplement probably that has a lot of evidence that it's actually effective in improving performance. Uh, what so bicarb does so the bicarbonate um, parts of the molecule so it's sodium bicarb that's what we ingest. Uh, The bicarbonate like helps to buffer um, the um, hydrogen ions uh, in the bloodstream, meaning that we kind of get a normalization of um, pH in the blood. Um, And I think what this leads to is actually, um, because obviously pH in the blood is probably not as important as is pH in the uh, muscles. But by normalizing the pH in the uh, bloodstream, you create a bigger concentration gradient uh, for hydrogen ions, and this way you drive more um, hydrogen ions and lactate from the muscles into the bloodstream. And this is probably why you see an increase in uh, blood lactate even at the same power output with sodium bicarb supplementation.
0: Um, but the question
1: so you basically and you basically um, buffer the muscles. Well, also, well. the
0: question is: uh, I have actually yet to see evidence that um, acidity in the muscles actually impairs contraction. <laughs> I've actually seen instances where it improves contraction force. So the question is: What enzyme is are we actually helping? Because I am assuming it's. Um, uh, oh God! What's the what's the one in? The second enzyme in glycolysis, um, uh, f- I, I, I forgot. No,
1: uh, but, um, yeah, I, I totally get it. So, like, there is a really nice debate in the scientific literature about whether acidification is actually um, doing harm to muscle function or not. And I think I'm a, more in a camp of Hakan-Westerblatt um, saying that it's the phosphate um, ions that are actually um, causing the fatigue. But I think the counter argument is also pretty strong. So I think to a certain degree, hydrogen ions also play a role um, in this. Uh, So it's not just, yeah, um, just the um, phosphate ions. Um, I think to a certain degree, it's also hydrogen. Um, So I think it's that. And also there is some evidence showing that Acidification of the blood itself leads to like um, perception of effort, I think. Um, so combining like components of uh, lactic acid, meaning um, hydrogen ions and lactate, make you feel tired or fatigued uh, or feel the well, pain. Well, because we probably um, have so
0: chemoreceptors think- for that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I think there is a role um, in that. The problem with sodium bicarb is basically, basically water retention um, and gastrointestinal issues. That's why I kind of, I'm very skeptical <laughs> about it. Um, yeah,
0: because um, typically people are, uh, after they have a very large dose and they do their event. Uh, actually, if they time it wrong, I've seen people run to the toilet even before their event.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a big, it's a very big yeah. issue.
0: Okay, beta alanine.
1: Yeah, this is this is probably the supplement. Um, I'm kind of really interested in seeing and reading the literature and um, reading why it's supposed to be working. So they say, okay, well, beta alanine gets converted to carnitine, uh, no, um, carnosine, mm-hmm. right, um, in the uh, in the muscles, uh, and carnosine is supposed to be buffering. Um, Again, the hydrogen ions, and then um, making yeah um, the environment less acidic. Uh, but if you look at the literature and you find that perhaps that's not the case, yeah. right? Because it's actually the calcium sensitivity that's increased as a result of carnosine, um, and that's probably the mechanism. but in all the textbooks and sports nutrition like articles, you will find that it's a buffering uh, thing. Um, so it's, we are always down to like that lactic acid <laughs> yeah. uh, thing that's, it's a construct that's, yeah, we just can't get rid of.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I want to actually ask you about that in just a second, but let's talk about the last one, which is creatine. Yeah,
1: the, the, I'm, again, I'm pretty skeptical here as well, but so let's say that it. Definitely something that like sprinters would probably benefit from where the weight is not um, a limiting factor but also what I'm finding in the recent years probably if you're looking at the riders like Nairo Quintana his biggest problem is probably his body mass actually um, and lack of it because on the flats and on the time trials he just can't produce the power needed to like be competitive to the riders that are like 10 kilos heavier so perhaps what we want is actually a rider that has a high relative and high absolute power output at the same time Um, and i think creating can actually help that it just how you then um, it's kind of a risk you're taking perhaps you, you gain a kilo or so but if you also um, gain the power, then I think that's the goal is achieved. Um, and this is probably one of the biggest misconceptions in training is that we are always just trying to like minimize the body mass and not thinking what an increase in body mass like functional body mass, like muscle mass would do um, to the power output yeah, well, so. Th- This is one of the
0: things that uh, people ask me about all the time, and I actually really want to do a podcast on, um, which is uh, how does body mass actually influence power? Because a lot of people will say, you know, if you diet, you're going to lose power. But I typically find that this is because um, you're so glycogen depleted that you can't actually put out any power either at threshold or above. And so the big question is, like, what kind of power is he going to gain with more muscle mass? Because I would guess that he would get more power over threshold, but his threshold's probably not going to be impacted
1: I think it can also be like i'm a really good I, I find myself a really good example of this because I consider myself to have a lot of muscle mass like i 'm one sixty six centimeters and I have like sixty four kilos so that's pretty heavy for my height but uh, my threshold power, whichever it is, it's probably above 5.0 watts per kilo, uh, 5.4 watts per kilo. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty high despite my relatively high um, body mass. And I'm, I'm finding is, what I'm finding is that I can easily be riding my the first threshold. It's around 280 watts. And I can easily be riding with big guys, whereas if I had 56 kilos, um, I could probably have the same watts per kilo, but I would really be struggling on the flats. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. Um, okay, uh, I, will actually, I actually wanna ask you more about that, uh, but probably another time, um, because uh, we've been over an hour, and I, I, I thank you for coming, <laughs> by the way, and I, I respect your time, so I wanna just ask you this last section so I can let you get back to your day. Um, so you're a pretty outspoken critic of uh, MDPI. So tell me a bit about what this is and why is it bad?
1: Yeah, so MDPI is a publishing house uh, from China um, registered in Switzerland. Um, so research in the past, or when you, as a researcher, want, want to publish an article, Um, You usually publish it in a scientific article where it gets peer reviewed. So in the past, um, obviously in the era when there was no internet, people were publishing in those publications that got printed um, and then sent away. And then you had libraries and you went into the library, pick up a copy and read the papers. So there were a few respected journals that probably everyone was, subscribe uh, subscribe to, like Journal of Applied Physiology, um, things like that. But then when the internet came, suddenly, we so the publishers saw an opportunity to publish articles online. Um, so you can basically you're not limited in space, you can publish whatever, like however articles you want. Um, and one of the things that we kind of, as a as scientist, um, scientists want is actually to get um, our papers out and be published. Because as a result of that, in such countries, for instance, in Slovenia or like any Balkan countries, um, you get promotions based on how many publications you do. Um, so these publishing houses found an opportunity in this. So basically, you pay for publication. Um, on in their like let's say in their journal which is an online one um, you pay like some crazy amount like two three thousand euros for a publication Um, and what you get is um, you get it reviewed by um, certain reviewers and it's then openly accessible on the internet so basically um, those traditional journals remain to be Um, The content remains to be closed, so you have to be subscribed to it uh, to be able to see the content. But these new publishers like MDPI found an opportunity, well, let's not make a real journal, let's make a website, um, open access, and then publishers, I mean, the researchers will be paying for um, the uh, articles to be open access on the Internet. And the problem of MDPI is that they have this unlimited amounts of articles, so there is no selection whatsoever. And there the more articles they actually they can publish, the more money they make. Uh, because the reviewers are not getting paid. Um, probably the editors are not getting paid. Basically the whole money is taken by the publishing house. Um, and because we all want these publications, uh, at least some of them, they will just accept everything. Um, and the review process is really like really bad as well because as soon as you get an inflation on the numbers of papers that need to be reviewed, the quality of reviews uh, falls as well. Um, and it's not anymore the experts reviewing, but it's some students. Um, and yeah, just quickly glance through the article and say, yeah, that's fine. I'm just. Accepting. So how can
0: somebody tell if they're reading uh, a paper from um, you know, one of the journals in this publishing house? And um, you know, how can we tell if it's good science or not? Because I'm sure you know, they've got a couple good papers in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the, one of the strategies is actually that they invite um, respected um, scientists to publish in their journal um, and they don't charge for those articles. Um, and this way they actually build a reputation so they make sure that there are good articles in there. Um, so. When I'm uh, reading articles and just trying to make sure that, like for instance, when I'm in the topic that I don't know much about methods and stuff, I first make sure that the authors um, are well respected. Um, so you can clearly see which, very quickly see how many publications they have, if they're coming from a respected university, um, how many papers they have in the certain area, uh, not just in this MDPI. Um, Publishing house, but in like Journal of Applied Physiology, Journal of Physiology, and stuff like that. Um, and then you can quickly see uh, which er- articles are probably good and which are bad. Um, and unfortunately, it's more or less the articles from like countries that are not well known for doing good science that are most. So, what
0: countries are these? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I don't know if it's, I might be like biased or something, but probably like the states um, can, uh, the the English speaking countries, let's say, are pretty good quality usually. Um, And the problems are usually from the countries that have this um, like promotion system in the universities based on the number of publications. So um, let's say ex Yugoslavia countries, for instance, Probably Spain is one country that I keep seeing bad articles from. Um, unfortunately, yeah, this is Eastern Europe um, and, but yeah, mostly English-speaking countries are the standard is much yeah. higher. Well, and I
0: think I think most people now ha- think, uh, and I would agree that having access to more uh, more literature is good. Um, but I think that there may be a disconnect between what we think of as good science versus um, somebody who just thinks that if it's published and peer-reviewed at all, that it's good science. So, you know, what, um, what could we do to potentially, uh, you know, guard ourselves against bad science that's published wherever it's published in NB- uh, NDPI or just wherever? I think this
1: the whole concept of those journals is, I think, very outdated. I think that's the biggest problem, because reviewers are not getting paid for their reviews. And, um, and then you start asking yourself, why am I reviewing this if I don't get anything from it? Um, and we have this, like, probably too many papers out there at the moment. So an inflation of um, science, that's also a big problem. Um, and I think it's like a very major problem that I don't really know the answer how to like improve the situation because even like we get meta-analysis written on three or four papers these days um, and I find this just amusing and amazing. How how can you even like do a meta-analysis on three papers that everyone should read the original papers in the first place, right? Um, but yeah, it's... It's a problem because, for instance, um, the, the, the article that um, the viewpoint um, that we got published, I mean, accepted this morning, um, if I wanted it to be open access, I need to pay $3,000 for it. So obviously, as a researcher, that I'm struggling to get funds for my research, and now I'll pay $3,000 uh, just for open access.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what a lot of people happen, don't right? know is that you can actually email the author of a paper and ask them for a copy, and they can send it to you.
1: Yeah, that's we always do. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm a fan of sci as well. Me too. So, uh.
0: <laughs> I think that's the reason that uh, that my podcast is able to exist at all at this point. Otherwise, it would be, I you know, I I don't have the budget to read as many papers as I do if I had to pay for all of them. Because um, I probably read anywhere between five and 50 papers a week, and I assume you're about the same.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, even like with the university that has access to most journals, I, even, I still find myself using Sci-Hub uh, very, very yeah. often. Um, so it's a, it's a problem, and that's why kind of MDPI is um, also so popular, because it, it allows you to publish open access articles. Straight away.
0: Mm-hmm. Um what do you th- what about journals like uh that are more open access, like um uh PLOS One, I think is open access. Um Frontiers. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Yeah, so uh you know, so are other open access journals um you know, because I've actually read a lot of good papers in those journals. So you know, is, is it just because something's open access obviously it doesn't mean it's bad, right? So how do we look at the papers? and think this is good science, this is bad science? Um, Well, I I think you and I have an easier time with it, but uh, like an average athlete who wants to read more of the scientific literature themselves, like what recommendations would you make to them?
1: So usually when, as a researcher, wants to publish an article, you want to publish it in the best possible journal. Um, And best possible journal is not perhaps the journal with the highest impact factor, But like the respected journal um, that has a tradition. And most of the time, you will find articles being um, ended ended in Frontiers um, or, for instance, MDPI that got rejected at some point in those respected journals. Um, So you always have to, I mean, I always ask myself. Why did this article end up in being in Frontiers instead of a journal of, I don't know, physiology or something like that? Um, and you usually find a reason for that, unless, for instance, the authors uh, got the invitation to publish for free there. Um, but otherwise, they would, everyone would probably like to publish rather in like those traditional journals, more respected mm-hmm. ones. Um, so whenever you are reading like an open access journal in like those online publishing house uh, journals, you have to be kind of cautious um, and ask yourself, yeah, perhaps why did this article end up being here? Um, and one of the things that I really like about, for instance, Frontiers is that reviewers are public, uh, publicly listed. Um, so, for instance, I reviewed an article this morning. Um, and my name is going to appear near that article. Um, So everyone will be able to judge my work um, based on the quality of the article, right?
0: Okay, so let me Um, ask my last question to you, uh, which is um, how does a reviewer improve the article? Like how would somebody notice your work and your impact on the article?
1: You can't really see it, right? Uh, But sometimes like reviewers can be, like we see them like sometimes as op- our opponents or our haters and people that just like you hate us when we come up with um, an article but most of the time they just want to improve the article um so that things that we haven't thought about gets picked up by them so they are like third parties uh, not involved in the um like research idea initial one and stuff so they usually are very helpful and sometimes they can improve the paper greatly. Um, So we are really, most of the time, very helpful for their comments. Um, But you never see this actually on the outside. For instance, like MDPI or I think even PLOS, um, at the bottom of the article, you can actually see the whole correspondence between the reviewers um, and um, the authors of the paper. Um, And you can actually check that and then actually see what the reviewers were asking and how thorough uh, they were. Um, and for instance, one of the criticisms I have for MDPI was uh, when we published that article um, about core body temperature and that sensor. Um, so we had, I think three reviewers um, initially reviewing the article um, and we responded to all three reviewers. One of the reviewers was very critical and kind of, I mean, critical, in terms of like he offered um, his expertise on how to improve the, um, uh, the article. And we obviously responded to all three reviewers. But then because he was thorough and probably the biggest expert of them all, um, he didn't respond to the, our replies within like five days. And MDPI just disregarded and didn't wait for his reply and just published the article Anyway, so just accepted it without like him reassessing what changes mm-hmm. with it um, and this is a, like also a big problem because sometimes you're waiting for months for reviewers to um, actually um, do their job and I think that's just fine um, in the state we are like take the time, think about it rather than like push for the publication to become online and available like in a few yeah. weeks. I
0: mean it's unfortunate that uh, you know, in the academic world, that that is so highly prized, and that it's you know things are in such a state where this happens a lot.
1: Yeah, it's it's it's. Pre- I'm pretty sad, um, but yeah, it's nothing probably like we can do. Um, it's just that this transition um, from paper to internet was just so sudden and got people unprepared, so suddenly we have this big problem that nobody knows how to solve.
0: Well, I mean, we couldn't even anticipate it. And if we could, what could we do? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, All right, Tim, thank you so much for your time. Alright, so once again, I want to thank Tim for his time, that was a great conversation Uh, I was, um, I'm sorry I'm not a better interviewer, but I am doing my level best, Uh, so um, we'll probably have him on again, Uh, there's always lots more to talk about, Um, so if you want to check him out, he is uh, Tim Padlogar on Instagram, and if you want to check me out, I am Empirical Cycling on Instagram, in case you couldn't figure that out, everybody did Uh, We can AMAs in the stories as well, and Tim's stories are awesome as well, so really check him out, Uh, he's going to be great, so Um, Again, if you want to share the podcast, thank you so much for that. Uh, Reach out. If you want to become an Empirical Cycling coaching client, uh, empiricalcycling at gmail.com. If you want to set up a consultation, we can look at your data, et cetera, et cetera. Um, If you want to donate, you can do so at empiricalcycling.com slash donate. So um, uh, with that, I will see everybody next time.